And I want to thank uh, Israel Hayward and Dan Webb for filling in for Pastor Frank Jr. and I while we are gone. I watched both of their teachings, and they did a, did a great job. And um, the only thing I didn't like about it is it made me feel convicted, and that's the only problem. But other than that, it was, it was excellent. A few announcements. We have an adult dinner, the 14th, uh, coming up, and that's to be announced. And for those of you that are new here, uh, once a month we have an adult dinner. It's for anyone after the, who's graduated from high school. And we just go out together and have a meal, and it's, uh, it's a lot of uh, great fellowship with other believers. So we encourage you. There'll be a sign-up sheet. You can put your name down, because obviously we have to make reservations, so we need to know the number. And um, also, there'll be no church dinner this month because it falls on Father's, Father's Day. And of course, we know that Father's Day is very important. In fact, more important than Mother's Day. But anyway, um, we won't be having any church dinner uh, this month for that reason. Now, we need volunteers because we desire to start Children's Church back up. And right now, we don't have enough volunteers. It's an awesome ministry to be involved in. The kids in this church are great, and uh, if you've never been here before, you want to walk through the downstairs. We have all kinds of facilities there. And, uh, so please see Nikki Thomas. You want to raise your hand? Nikki Thomas is my beautiful daughter-in-law, Pastor Frank Jr.'s wife, and um, she'll uh, give you whatever information you need as far as children's church is concerned. And um, also, am I missing something? Did I forget something? I always look around. Okay, no, I guess I didn't. Um, one of the other things I wanted to mention, too, is that we're, we're going to start doing a chapter a week on Sundays. Pastor Frank Jr. will do a chapter, and I'll do a chapter. And the reason is I was calculating the speed for which we're going through the Bible, and I figured out it would be another 20 years before we finished. So uh, we, we decided to speed it up a little bit. So we're going to be doing a chapter a month, a week, a day. No, we're going to be doing a chapter a week. So what I encourage you to do, because we're going through the Bible together, and it's called systematic expositional preaching. And so what I encourage you to do, brothers and sisters, is, for instance, I'm in, in uh, chapter 31 this week. So next week we'll be covering chapter 32 and chapter 33. So take time throughout the week to read those two chapters so you're familiar with them. And then when we sit down and we teach uh, you those particular verses, it'll make more sense to you. And also, it's a chance for you to do your own personal Bible study, take some notes, you know, and so forth. So anyway, we are in Deuteronomy chapter 31. And this portion um, is all about Israel entering into the promised land. And everything we read in Scripture, we have to ask ourselves, how does this apply to me personally? Because the word, this is the word of God to man. It's not the word of God to you know, theologians or the word of God to certain you know, doctrines or, or whatever. It's the word of God to man. And so, therefore, when we study the word of God, we have to be asking ourselves, how does it apply to us? For all things were written for our learning, that through constant, you know, the endurance of Scripture, we might have hope. What hope? Of eternal life, being with the Lord. But anyway, this portion we're looking at is about them getting ready to enter into the promised land. And God has called each one of us to enter into the promised land, the promised land of salvation. 
You know, there's nothing greater than knowing that all your sins are forgiving and you have a relationship with the Lord. You know, I was 30 years old before I, I came to the Lord. I was a, a high school science teacher, and um, I remember having different people witness to me and thinking it was ridiculous and it was silly. And then my wife ended up getting saved. And so after she got saved, I sat down with her. In fact, as a lot of school teachers, during the summer I painted houses. I don't know how many of you realize that, but a lot of school teachers in those days, we painted houses. And I came home from work that day, and I told my wife, I said, I need to sit down with you. And I said, I want you to understand, you know, that you want to accept Christ, you want to be a born-again Christian, it's okay, but don't let it ruin our marriage. And what you also have to realize is when I was a kid, I went to Sunday school, so I probably know more than you. I, I didn't, but anyway, I really, that's really what I did say. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not joking. Well, Vi shared with me about the whole plan of salvation and the reason Jesus came and died on the cross. And uh, I remember all that week, all I could do was think about what she said. And I was actually up on a 42-foot ladder painting a soffit on the attic of a two-story building when it hit me. It's all true. It's all true because... Prior to that, I had taken a little pocket Bible out of the house because I didn't even want Vi to know I was considering what she was saying. And I started studying, especially the Gospel of John, and I knew it was all true. And I gave my life to Christ, and my life has never been the same. And I'm 76 years old, so you know how long I've been a believer now, since I was 30. And it's been such a blessing to know Jesus Christ. And so when we study his word, it's God speaking to us, and there's meaning and there's purpose in it. Just like them crossing over into the promised land, God has given you promises. He's given you a way of life that he has laid out before you. All you have to do is go in and possess it. Now, in verses um, 1 through 3, we're going to be looking at first. And uh, in these verses, the, the Lord is telling them that he is going to go before them to destroy the nations, to destroy the obstacles, just as he did all those who opposed them in the wilderness. Now when they cross over out of the wilderness, cross over the Jordan into the promised land, he's going to give them the same victories. And we have to understand that there are always those who oppose us. And it's not necessarily people. It can be situations. It can be you know, circumstances, whatever it is. But there are always those and those things that oppose the work of the Lord in us. But we have to trust God that he'll give us the victory. Now, in verses 1 through 3, Moses goes and he explains why he can't go over. He says, I'm old and all this stuff. And he gives all these reasons why he can't cross over the Jordan. But there's something very interesting here, and there's some several great points we can make from this. And that is, is that the reason Moses could not enter into the promised land, as he's proclaiming in verses 1 through 3 of Deuteronomy 31, isn't because he was old, it was because he disobeyed God. And you're probably thinking, what's the pastor talking about? Well, we go to the Word of God to find the answers. Go to Numbers. That's the book just before Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Go to Numbers, chapter 20. Numbers, chapter 20, and go to verse 7. Verse 
Numbers chapter 20, go to verse 7. Just to lay the groundwork here, the children of Israel were complaining because they didn't have water. God had always supplied their need, but yet they were out of water and they were complaining and grumbling before the Lord because they didn't have water. And this is where we pick up in, chap- in verse 7 of Numbers chapter 20. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Notice, if you haven't noticed it before, it says, speak. Look at that. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water uh, for them out of the rock and give them uh, drink for the congregation and their animals. And give drink for the congregation and their animals. God wasn't angry. He wasn't saying, yeah, Moses, yeah, those people are... uh." God wasn't angry. He was just telling Moses, here's what you need to do in order to supply the needs of the people and also their cattle. He wasn't angry. Now, verse 9. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, hear now, you rebels... See how he's adding to God's word and his emotion? Must we, what do you mean we? It's God who does this miracle, not we. Uh, Must we bring water for you uh, out of the rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock twice with his rod and water came came out abundantly and the congregation uh, of the animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Did you not believe me to hallow my name in the eyes of the children of Israel? Therefore you shall not bring the assembly into the land which I have given you. I thought I was bleeding. I'm not bleeding now. Okay. Sorry, 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 sorry. Now, the thing that's interesting about this is... Moses obviously completely went contrary to what God was telling him to do. Number one, he was taking some credit for it, and it was all the Lord. And number two, he was talking to the people as if God was angry at them, and he wasn't. And so the Lord said, your discipline for this is you're not going to lead them into the promised land. Because we have to understand, it's never the person who leads, it's always the Lord. And so Moses, of course, would not have that beautiful honor of crossing over the Red Sea and taking the children into the promised land of Cana. But nevertheless, God loved Moses. Because Moses made this mistake, because Moses misunderstood what God was saying as far as intent, it doesn't mean that God just said, okay, I'm through with you, Moses. God loved Moses. As a matter of fact, Scripture says God called Moses his friend. And the point is, is that even you and I as believers, we might have those times that we, mis- we might misunderstand the leading of the Lord and do things maybe in a way that we shouldn't, and it doesn't mean God's through with us. God is patient. He's not only love, he is also patient, wishing for none of us to perish. So when we make our mistakes, we just go go, go to the Lord and say, oh God, forgive me, a sinner. Because Moses wasn't angry. As a matter of fact, he tells the people, Joshua will be the one that takes you over now. And Moses simply accepted the discipline of the Lord. And so we have to understand that when we make a mistake, we need to just say, Lord, forgive me. I messed up. 
and he will. And it doesn't mean that those things that we have done for the Lord prior to that point are just forgotten. No, God called Moses his friend and recognized Moses as the deliverer, the one who he used to deliver the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. It's absolutely amazing. Now, I love it that he also mentions Joshua, the son of Nun. And he says, he's going to be your new leader. And the thing that's interesting about Joshua is, you recall, they were only in the wilderness a short period of time. They could have crossed over then into the promised land. And so God sent two spies in. Not God. Moses sent two spies into the promised land to check it out before they went in and conquered it. And the two spies were Joshua and Caleb. And there were five others as well, or seven others, eight others. There's ten spies, eight others as well. Math, I should not have a problem with it, but I do. But anyway, there were ten spies, and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, came back with a good report. And they said, we can go in and take this land. God's given it to us, Joshua and Caleb. The other spies said, no, we can't. If we go in, they're going to, they're like, you know, we're like grasshoppers in our own eyes. They're giants. If we go in, they're going to destroy us. And so they incited the people, the children of Israel, to fear. So they said, we don't want to cross over. We don't want to go in. And so God said to them, here's what's going to happen. You will not cross over. Your children will, but you won't. And so God had them marching in the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation died, that generation of rebellion. And those that went in were their children. Absolutely amazing to see how God works. Now, Moses did not have a problem with the discipline of God, and neither should we. When God disciplines us, we shouldn't get angry or mad or frustrated. Why are you doing this to me? In fact, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. It's the New Testament, towards the end. Page 630. No, I'm just joking. Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm going to read from, I'm going to read verse 6, verse 8, and verse 11. So Hebrews chapter 12, starting first with verse 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Well, why would he do that? Because we have to understand it's talking about training. Train up your child in the way they shall uh, go. And when they grow old, they will not depart from it. And so we have to understand that we train up our children because we want them to do what's right. We want them to have a good and happy and peaceful life. Well, in the same way, God wants to train us up. And so just like a good parent, there are times that they have to discipline their children because here's the reality of it. You know, discipline sometimes is what we need to get our act together, right? I mean, it would be nice if that weren't the case. But if you say to your child, oh, you know, this was your job to take the garbage out today, and, and I know that's an agreement that mommy and daddy have with you, and we noticed you didn't do it, but, well, maybe next week you'll do it. Guess what? Next week they won't. But if you say to your child, well, you forgot to take the garbage out, and therefore you're not going to watch your favorite show tonight. <clears throat> next week they take the garbage out. And so discipline has a purpose. I mean, can you imagine? I was a school teacher. Actually, I was a school principal, too. But can you imagine if you had students in class 
and they were taking your unit exam, and you sent, gave the exams back, and they all had 100 on it. <clears throat> and the students are saying, why is this? Well, I didn't want to discipline you. I thought it might make you feel bad. I thought it might just kind of crush your self-esteem. So I gave everybody 100. Well, how do we know who's right or wrong? Well, who is right and who is wrong? You follow what I'm saying? It'd be like reading a road map and saying, so where are we going? Wherever you want. <laughs> no, no, you have to have a destination. You have to have a place that you want to go. And the same thing is true with the discipline of God. He disciplines us because he loves us. Now move down to verse 8 of Hebrews 12. But if we are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, in other words, we all have to be disciplined from time to time, then you are illegitimate and are not sons. So you have people say, well, I'm a Christian and I never feel conviction in my life. I never feel any guilt. I'm a Christian. Uh, I don't think you are. I don't think you are a son. Because the Lord chastens according to this those that he loves. And unless you're Jesus Christ, you make mistakes. You fall to sin. And therefore you need chastening. In verse 11, I love verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful at the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Training is a good thing. Discipline is a good thing. Because when we discipline our children, it's for their good. It's be like a parent who lives on a busy highway saying, well, I don't want to discipline my child for going out into the road because I don't want to crush their, their will and their self-esteem. So I just won't say anything. I'll just let them go out and get hit by a garbage truck. The point I'm getting at is we discipline our children because we're trying to protect them. And therefore, we have to realize that if we, as Scripture said, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more shall the uh, Father give you the Holy Spirit? So the Lord desires to give to us, but we can only receive and understand and use what he has given us if we use it properly, which requires discipline. There's nothing wrong with discipline. And you know, when we think of discipline, we only think of it in a negative way. I remember when I first went in the army, which is about 430 years ago, but when I first went in the army, they disciplined us. Well, it wasn't like, come here, slap, slap, slap. It was training us. When, when they used the word discipline, we also understood it as training. They trained us so that when we got into a dangerous situation, we would know how to handle it and take care of ourselves and our, and our friends. Well, the same thing is true of the Lord's discipline. It's not only for our benefit and for our good, but the way we minister to those around us. Now, moving down in Deuteronomy, in verses uh, 4 through 6, I'm going to read verse 6, and it says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord, your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. What a promise we have there. So when we face our enemies... We're not to be afraid. We're to trust in the Lord. And he's the one who wins the victories for us. Because our enemies might not be the Canaanites, but we have a tougher enemy. It's called self. Self's a great enemy. Because we are selfish from birth. When a child is born, when they first you know, come out of the womb, they're not crying. They're saying, me, me. 
we're selfish. That was a joke I heard. Anyway, but we're very selfish. And self is always the enemy of what is good and what is righteous. Because we have to realize that we are a lazy people. And it's easier for us to do things that satisfy the flesh than not do those things that satisfy the flesh. I mean, there's not too many mornings that I wake up and I say, oh, I can't wait to get in there and and get on my rowing machine and lift a few weights and work out. I can't wait to do that. And someone says, well, you can't do that today. Oh, no. No, it's usually I don't want to work out, but I know I need to. Because age and gravity do an awful job on the body. And when you work out, it helps you. But you understand the point I'm making. Eating right, working out, living a, a moral, righteous life is not necessarily in the flesh the easiest, but it is the best. When you let yourself go physically, you're going to feel the ravages of it. And when you let yourself go spiritually, the ravages are even worse. And so we have to understand how important it is um, to follow the Lord. Because as it tells us in Romans 6.23, For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And um, the wage of sin is death. Not necessarily physical death, but spiritual death. Being separated from God. And... So we have to realize that following the Lord and being obedient to him is not just some philosophy or some doctrine or some dogma we're following. It really is the essence and meaning of life. God created us, and we'll talk about that in a moment, for his good purposes. And then the Lord gives them encouragement and victory uh, just as he did as they faced their enemies before they crossed over because we have to understand, as Scripture tells us, if the Lord be for you, who can be against you? Who can be against you? And the Lord is calling every one of us to cross over trusting in Him. See, the easiest thing to do is stand on the other side of the Jordan and stay there in what we call the land of safety. But to cross over is, is victory, but it's also risk. And many of us would love to stand on the side of the Jordan of safety rather than ever take a risk. But if you never take a risk, you're never going to grow. If you never take a risk, you're not going to find what God's will is for your life. You have to be willing to. Because the Lord is calling every one of us to cross over into the land of trust. Because when you are willing to accept the risk, you're trusting the Lord and the Lord will give you the victory. So you need to cross over into that. Now, he also brings them to the point of crossing over where it would require humility because it's not about self any longer, but it's about the Lord. It's about serving the Lord. It's about being humble in the eyes of the Lord. But the reality is we are so self-consumed. So, Have you ever thought about how everything we do is based on self how do I look? How do I feel? How do I, how do I, how do I? But the reality is, God wants us to just serve Him by serving others, to be others oriented. In fact, I've shared this with you before, but William Booth, who's the founder of the Salvation Army, and um, great man of God, and uh, in his later years, he was supposed to speak at a conference, and he was unable to attend because of illness. 
And so he sent um, one of his um, workers, one of his, you know, the Salvation Army was set up like military. They had ranks and stuff. So he sent one of his generals to speak at the conference for him. And so when the general got up there, people were expecting to hear all this wisdom, you know, from William Booth, who his general was going to share. And his general got up and said, this is the message from William Booth, others. That was it, others. It's not about us, it's about others. It's about the Lord, it's about serving him. Now, in verses 7 through 8 of this portion, Moses openly commissions Joshua and he turns the leadership over to him. And uh, why? That God might be glorified. Because it's a n- never a matter of who gets the credit in the human sense. It's the fact that God gets the credit. We always m- m- must make sure God gets the credit. But so often, how, how often do we want to get credit? You know what I did? You know what I did? You know what I did? I'm going to do this secretly, but I'll leave some clues that they know it's me. You know what I'm saying? We have to understand it's never a matter of whether we get... Who cares if I get any credit because God has given me an exceedingly great reward that when I die, I'm going to be with him in heaven. What could be a greater reward than that? I don't need any credit in this life. Because anything we do out of pride is lifting up self rather than the Lord. And we have to understand the Lord desires obedience better than sacrifice. Now, in verses 9 through 13 of this chapter, the Lord, through Moses, he ordains the priests uh, to minister to, uh, to God, to minister to the people uh, on behalf of God. He ordains these priests that they might stand before the people, and they had to gather at a certain time in a certain place that they might be ministered to by what? By the word of God. That They would be taught the word of God. And that was their very purpose, was to gather the people together and read God's word to them. And this is why church is not an option. Because the very purpose and reason you come to church is to hear the word of God expounded upon. And that's one of the main reasons why we do expository preaching. We go right through the Bible. Because I don't want you to be coming here to listen to me or to Pastor Frank Jr. I want you to hear the word of God expounded and opened up to you. And um, the gathering in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, it says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see that day approaching. And so we have to understand that our reason of being gathered together is to hear the word of God, is to to learn and to exhort one another. Now, we think of exhortation as being, you, da-da-da-da. Exhortation is encouraging. That's what the word means. So we gather together to encourage one another in the Lord. Wow, God's word is great. Like Pastor Frank Jr.'s message, if you didn't hear it, thankfully we have things on YouTube and on our website. You've got to hear his message from this morning. It was as good as anything I've ever done. <laughs> his, his message was over the top. Good. So anyway, you want to listen to it. So we have to realize that through his word, we are encouraged. And it's for the whole family. And that's one of the reasons we're starting up Children's Church again. And why you need to see my daughter-in-law if you're willing to help. Because it's difficult, let's be honest, for little guys to be able to sit through a whole service. 
So we have children's church where they're taken downstairs and they're taught on their own level the things of God. And so see Nikki if you're willing to help in that great ministry so that our whole family can be ministered to. Because in this portion, you notice it says bring all the children. It wasn't just for the men, it was for the men, for the women, for the children. They're all to come before the Lord. And we have to also understand that the Lord establishes many biblical churches in, a, in any area. Do you know that? We're not the only church. And the worst thing that can happen is when Christian churches get in competition with one another. It's not a competition. It's teaching the word of God. The people might be saved. The people might be encouraged. But when, you know, well, you should come to our church because that church is... No, 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 no. Where do you go to church? Praise God. They teach the word of God. I'm glad you're there. Hallelujah. It's never a competition. We work in conjunction with one another by the Holy Spirit and the calling of God to teach the word. And um, I love what it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Now I say this, that each of you says, and Paul is writing this because people were trying to distinguish themselves between other churches and other groups. Now I say this, that each of you say, I am of Paul. In other words, I go to the Paul church. I am of Paulus, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? You were baptized, in the, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? In other words, he's saying, why are you dividing yourselves? There's only one God and one Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, there's only one church. We might have individual areas that we gather, but there's only one church, the church of Jesus Christ, who gave his life that we might be born again and be in fellowship with him and spend all eternity with him. Then in verses 14 through 18 of this chapter, it tells us and it makes it clear, it is only God who, are, who ordains those who teach his people. Understand this. To be called to be a minister, to be a pastor of Jesus Christ, it is not a college degree earned, it's a calling to be followed. You know, so many people say, what are you going to college for? I'm going to college to be a pastor. Were you called? Well, I don't know, but that's my major. No, 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 no. It is not some, it is not some major that you take in college. It is a calling from God. And so we have to realize that you can't just, no one can just put themselves in the place of ministry. They have to be called of the Lord. You have to have a definite calling. I had a definite calling of God that I avoided for years because I didn't want to step down from what I was doing. Pastor Frank Jr. had a calling from God, and he also ran in the other direction, way in the other direction. And, uh, <laughs> but he's got his buddy Tommy back there with him. I remember Tommy, who's sitting alongside of Pastor Frank Jr. when they were in eighth grade. And they were naughty. But anyway, um, they were good kids. They were always good kids. But anyway, the Lord called my son into the ministry. And he's one of the greatest pastors I've ever heard. I really mean that. Now, we have to realize, like it tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16, it says it was, I'm just going to read the first part of it, and he, and in your Bible it's a capital H, it's the tetragrammaton, it's talking about Jesus, it's talking about the Lord. 
And he himself, both capital H's, gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, for the equipping of saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so it's God who calls, and he calls for the equipping of the saints. You know, in Yahweh, he, we, he warns us about not falling to the flesh and to fleshly types of doctrines. Because so many churches are divided by doctrine. People ask us, well, what kind of church are you, Christian? Well, no, what I mean is, is are you Arminian? Are you Calvinist? Are you Pentecostal? Are you charismatic? Are you hyper-charismatic? Are you, uh, yeah, we're a church. We're not going to be divided by doctrine. And one of the problems and one of the mistakes that many churches do is they try to establish themselves on their doctrine. We can't do that. This is the doctrine of God. The Word. And the fact is that so many times when people have certain pet doctrines that they ride like a hobby horse, they take and they, they pull Scripture here and there, and that's all they preach. When you go right through the Bible, you're going to touch everything. Now, in verses 19 through 21, God commissioned Moses to write down the words, all the words for the people so that they could be sure. And um, Moses, of course, wrote the five, first five books of the Bible, which we call the Pentateuch. And the Bible, the Word of God, is for our benefit that we might know the truth. Truth. Now, we call ourselves Berean, taken from Acts 17.11. The Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with all eagerness, but daily examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. So we're Bereans. That's why we go through the word of God. I don't want you to believe anything because I said so. I want you to believe because the word of God says so, and the Holy Spirit confirms it to your heart. It's the only reason you should believe anything. What does the word of God say? It's not a matter of the teachings of men. And God gives his precious word to us so that we can study it. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it talks about us studying the word, getting into the word of God, that we might show ourselves approved workmen correctly handling the word of truth. Because if something doesn't line up with the word of God, it's wrong. As simple as that. Now, um, the thing that's interesting is that you have so many people who will say, well, why should we believe the word of God? Because there are infallible proofs that it's true. Do you know that if you take a Bhagavad Vita, you know, the, the Quran, uh, the writings of Confucius, and, and all these other, you know, holy books that are supposedly out there, not one of them has prophecy in it. The Bible is one-third prophecy. Why don't they have prophecy in it? Because if their book proclaims something was going to happen and it didn't happen, it would show that book was false. But everything God's word promised to happen did happen, including Israel becoming a nation. You know, on February 14, May 14, 1948, they became a nation. Just like God promised they would. Speaking the ancient language, Pastor Frank got into that a little bit this morning. 
So we have to realize what God says will come to pass. And he also has given us many prophecies concerning the times in which we're living. Our world is falling apart. Our world is ripe for judgment. But be of good cheer. He's not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation through Jesus Christ. So one day, maybe very soon, hopefully before we even finish this message, God's going to call his church out of the world. Well, is, is the Bible that accurate? Yes, it is. It's that accurate. As a matter of fact, there's a, a literary um, term that they use. It's called Plato's Dictum. And what Plato's Dictum is, is it helps determine the authenticity or the reliability of a book. And what they do is they go down to the most ancient copy of a particular book to the most modern and comparing it with those in between to see how consistent it is. And according to Plato's dictum, guess what book is the most accurate book in the world? The Bible. It hasn't changed. It's the same today, yesterday, and forever. And so we have to realize we have a very precious gift in our hands called the Word of God. And so the doctrines of men will do nothing but pull you away. Moses warns them, even before they go into the promised land, they said, you're going to go in there, you're going to possess the land, and you're going to follow me for a while, but then you're going to fall away. Why? Because they started falling into the doctrines of men. They made their faith a religion. And people are surprised sometimes when I say, I think religion is awful. Why do you say that? Because religion is man-made. We have faith. Not a religion. Religion is a bunch of rules and regulations and doctrines that we follow. And it's man's attempt to reach up to God when in reality it was God who reached down to man through the incarnation, through the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. He reached down to man. And it is only through Jesus that we can have a relationship with God. And so it's not a matter of who says this or who says that. And the Bible is so true. And one of the things that has been used to undermine the Bible more than anything else, and it's interesting, let me just regress a little bit. Our educational system was founded on the Word of God. Did you know that? Go look it up. The first primary readers they had were, the, were from the Bible. And now our educational system, and I know this for a fact, our educational system is off into Nana land. They are about as anti-Bible and anti-biblical as you can imagine. Just like the theory of evolution. Understand it's a theory. It's an unfounded theory. and It makes absolutely no sense. And that undermines the very basis of who God is. Because in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if that isn't true, then God isn't true He's, his word isn't reliable. And so we have to understand everything the word of God says is true. And yet, in ignorance, and I say ignorance because it makes no sense, people have turned their back on the truth of creation. Well, I'm actually very intellectual, and I have 35 PhDs, and I'm just here to tell you that everything that we see came from nothing. Oh, Wow. It took you 12 years of education to learn that. But I'm here to tell you, everything that we see came from God. It did come from something, from God. God said, let there be, and there was. 
And it absolutely makes no sense. You know, we have the Big Bang Theory. You know, there was nothing, then it exploded. You know, all these crazy theories out there that make no sense at all. But to understand that God created the heavens and the earth makes more sense than anything else that we have. Because God created everything in perfect order. Well, did you know that the light from Venus has probably been traveling 25 million years before it finally reached the earth? Well, that's according to your estimation and according to your calculations. But when God said, let there be light, it was instant, everywhere. Just as God said. Well, you know, I, I just have a hard time. Um, I mean, how could anything so complex as the human body and everything else we see in the world come from a creator God. I just think it would just happen. Do you understand what I'm saying, how absolutely silly it is? You know, look this up. This is kind of fun. In the 1950s, I can't remember the scientist's name. Forgive me for that. But he wrote a paper concerning the dust on the moon. And he was calculating how, how much cosmic dust would be falling on the moon in comparison to the dust that we have, the gravitational pull, is smaller in the moon, but anyway, he was determining how, how deep it would be. And they figured that the dust in the moon would be somewhere around 30 to 40 feet deep. As a matter of fact, when they landed on the moon, the first lunar landing, if you've ever been to the Smithsonian Institute, which Brian and I had the pleasure of doing, and you see the first uh, you know, pod that landed on the moon, it had these huge, like, you know, round, you know, kind of like the saucers kids ride in the snow, had these huge saucers on all three prongs. You know why? Because they were afraid of sinking down into the dust. And we've all seen the pictures. What was the dust, that deep from the footprint? Well, the calculation was that the earth being so many millions of years old, the dust would be that deep. Well, the, the depth of the dust indicated that the earth was probably between six and 7,000 years old. Well, why is that? Because the moon is necessary for the earth to be in orbit. Did you know that? It's like a gyroscope. So there's no moon, there's no earth. And so the moon and the earth have to be the same age. But the moon's six or, you know, five or six or 7,000 years old and the earth is billions of years old. No, that's not the case. We have to realize the word of God is absolutely true and especially what it tells us about creation. You know, it's just like the sun. Do you know that the sun loses so much mass every year? And if the earth were billions of years old, the mass of the sun would touch the earth, actually be through it. And there'd be no life at all. So many things like that that are just overlooked and ignored. And they just say, well, it's just a mountain of improbability. What? You know, you're coming up with a famous saying, the mount of improbability? What's that? So, anyway, I don't mean to get off on that. It's just one of my pet peeves. But we have to understand that the church is simply the gathering place for God's people. The church isn't this building. The church is not the seat you're sitting in. We are the church of Jesus Christ. People. God does not live in a building. He lives in the heart of believers. And the gathering together, which we call a church, is for the purpose of studying his word. And so I encourage you, be willing to cross over into all the promises of God and let all the things on this side of the, of the Jordan stay there. Cross over. He has great promises for you. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for all of your word and for all the truth that we find in it.
And I pray that the things that we have talked about and studied together would, would really just be printed on our hearts and our conscience, that we would know all the truth of your word and not be led astray and discouraged by the teachings of this world. We're living in a time, Lord, that our faith is more important than ever. Everything's falling apart, but you've given us promises in the midst of all that. And so we thank you for all things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you, my friends.